The opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District or its employees. For more information about the Sewer District and its projects and programs, visit neorsd.org. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District presents Clean Water Works, a podcast that explores water, sewer, and stormwater issues that affect you and your community. Learn about the people, projects, and programs that are protecting your health and the environment here in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. Christine Emerly is a project engineer with our planning group. So Christine was heavily involved in our local sewer system evaluation study, and she's also very involved in our member community infrastructure program grant that gives money to the communities for their local infrastructure. How did you come to work for the district? So I am from the Cleveland area originally. I grew up in Rocky River, Ohio, and I went to college at Valparaiso University, which is in Northwest Indiana, where I studied civil engineering, theater, and French. Okay, good combination, (laughs) good combination. Yeah, a little bit all over the place. Um, But I came back to the greater Cleveland area as I was searching for a job after I graduated. I had initially applied for, I think, a position in uh, our swim department. Oh. Um, and someone in HR reached out to me and said, hey, we don't think we're going to move forward with you for this one, but we have this internship in our planning department that we think that you might be a good fit for. Oh, perfect. And I was a little bit skeptical at the time because I had graduated and I thought I yeah. already had a bunch of internships, but we'll see where this goes. And so I came in for the interview and learned more about the internship program at the district and how we have our paraprofessional internship, which is geared more towards upper level college and graduates. Mm -hmm. Worked as an intern for, I think, eight months and then eventually um, was offered a full-time role with the planning department in ENC. And that's where I've been ever since and really love it here. Great, great. Well, we're so glad that you decided to come on board and join our planning group. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill and all the money coming towards infrastructure. Um, There's been a lot of talk about how this is the most money that's going to be going into infrastructure than since the new deal. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the planning group at the sewer district? Um, Aren't all the sewers already in the ground? I feel like that's what people are going to (laughs) say. I obviously know the answer to that, but if you could talk a little bit about what the planning group focuses on. So as I mentioned, planning is part of our engineering and construction department. And most people understand that engineering and construction can be divided roughly into design and construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one step ahead of that, which is planning. And planning? S- <laughs> you can't just like start designing something and immediately put it in the ground? <laughs> Matter of fact, no. <laughs> uh, planning takes a big picture look at any problem or question that comes up across the district. So we really cast a wide net to look at all of our potential paths forward and determine what alternative to solve an issue might make the most sense, um, not just from a technical view, but also from a financial, from safety, from operational, um, you know, looking at it from all different angles. 
some of the projects that I've been involved with have asked questions like, what does this plant need for the next 20 years in order in order to keep operating and meeting our requirements and goals um, from from a basic operational standpoint, from a structural standpoint, but also from a regulatory standpoint, what do we think our phosphorus limits are going to look like? How does that affect our chemical dosing or our energy requirements? Um, but there's also an aspect of our work that is more community focused. Recently, we just finished four local sewer system evaluation studies, which was a very large investment into the local systems owned by our member communities, asking them, hey, where are your problem areas? And then working with communities to go in and do flow monitoring, smoke testing, dye testing, uh, and then taking all of that information and doing hydraulic modeling to help come up with alternatives that the communities can then move forward with to implement solutions for basement backups, uh, sewer system overflows, other water quality and quantity issues. Yeah, so and a lot of those studies showed that some of our infrastructure is not in good condition. <laughs> there's some some places there's not enough capacity, meaning there there's not enough room for all of the flow that needs to go through the pipes. Um, they also showed that some of the infrastructure is just starting to fall apart um, and needs to be replaced or lined or you know fixed in some way. Mm-hmm. So I think um, when we gave those to the communities, they were glad that we did the studies and a little overwhelmed at Absolutely. the amount of work. Yeah. I, if I recall correctly, over the next 50 years, there's um, about a $3 billion investment uh, that would be required across the entire service area. So that's a, a large amount of money and <laughs> it is across a, a long time period, but it really underscores the importance of, like you mentioned, the federal infrastructure dollars, increasing investment where we can, uh, and also of planning work to figure out, okay, we've got this huge need. How are we going to do this? And how are we going to partner with our communities to, um, you know, facilitate that to help them implement these findings from these studies and to support that work on the local side as well. Some of this infrastructure is quite old. Yes, yeah. Although some of our oldest infrastructure, like our 100-year-old brick sewers, are in some of the best condition because they were built to last and they've lasted this long. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it really goes to show the level of craftsmanship that went into those original sewers that went in. So walk us through a project or a problem area, how the community lets us know that it's a problem, how we discover it's a problem, and then the process for determining what the best fix is. So uh, across the service area, we divided it into four smaller areas based on the larger interceptors in those areas. And we went and spoke with the community engineers, community leaders, asked them, where are your problem areas? And they were able to highlight them on maps. Um, And then we were able to, once we had our teams uh, contracted and ready to go, uh, send out field crews to do that testing um, to investigate what is causing these issues. Because maybe we know this, you know, 
this area of homes, frequent basement backups, frequent flooding. Uh, what's causing that? Is it on the sewer side? Is it on a stormwater side? In which case we would pass it off to our stormwater team. Um, you know, really determining where is this problem coming from, uh, getting a handle on uh, the flows in the areas that then our mo- then the modeling team can take that into the hydraulic models and. Um, calibrate essentially looking at what are we seeing in the real world is our model representing this accurately and then all right so now we have this good model let's run various different storms through it and see what are the levels in the pipes going to look like where are we going to project that there might be basement backups in larger storm events and then what improvements would help to alleviate that whether that be uh, like you mentioned Donna lining new infrastructure uh, relief sewers uh, or even uh, private property work what we found is that there's a lot more sewer length within the parcel of a home you know going around the footer drains the downspouts um, so sometimes it's even more effective to uh, complete that rehab work on that private side as opposed to in the street, the right of way. Uh, that gets a little tricky depending on ordinances in various communities. Um, but that's, you know, all part of the learning process and the information sharing. And as we go forward, figuring out how can we work together to solve these problems given our, our different uh, zones and areas of influence. So from those large studies that we've now given to the community with all these problem areas and potential solutions, um, those solutions are are broken into tiers mm-hmm. one, two, and three. Um, tier one problems being ones that um, they've ranked really highly when we've talked to them about their issues or ones that um, – you know, we are saying are, are really uh, an issue. And so from there, the communities are able to take those studies and take some of those um, findings and then apply for member community infrastructure yes. money. MCIP, the member community infrastructure program is one of the things that I enjoy the most about my role. Um, the MCIP is managed by our watersheds department, but uh, as a member of planning myself and one of my coworkers, Bill Fussner, uh, we act as technical advisors to the program. Um, we also have been working on figuring out ways to increase equity within the program because we are receiving applications from across the, across the service area. Um, we get a lot of really technically sound projects, but we know that there are some areas that historically have received more investment than others. So how can we, uh, you know, we're awarding a large sum of money. So how can we make sure that we're awarding that in an equitable fashion across the service area? Um, and it's really rewarding to see projects get put in the ground that are solving issues for our ratepayers and for our customers and for the people in our region. Um, I am always excited to hear reports of we finished construction. We haven't had any reports of basement backups. A giant storm went through and we got no calls. <laughs> yeah, those um, are the best. <laughs> yeah. One project that comes to mind is in Garfield Heights. Over the past few years, there has been one neighborhood in particular that has just had historic routine flooding. And so the community really was committed to solving these issues and renewing the infrastructure 
year by year, they came to us with different phases and different streets in this community where they wanted to um, separate common trench sewers, reline, put in, just totally renew the area. And over the years, we've been able to fund, I believe, five different phases of this project mm-hmm. um, and reducing basement flooding, um, also getting new roads because you have to, in many cases, tear up the roads. So that's that completely visible um, change as well, because a lot of times the infrastructure that we're working with is underground and invisible. But so there's also that tangible benefit um, visually for residents in that area. Um, and so they've been really great to work with. And I know that, that those projects have been really beneficial in that area. This year, it'll be um, $15 million that we're going to be granting to our local communities for these uh, projects that they've identified, that we've identified. Um, And so it is separate from our stormwater program. Um, And so that's why Christine had said, if if it's a flooding problem caused by like a stream or something like that, that gets shipped off to a different department. But if it's you know, um, a basement flooding issue caused by capacity or something else that is usually a good project for this member community infrastructure grant program. Mm -hmm. And how do people find out more about the member community infrastructure program? You can visit our website. NEORSD.org slash MCIP. Oh, well, that's very easy then. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. Perfect. That's a great idea. (laughs) We love our acronyms here. One of our more notable initiatives here at the Sewer District is Project Clean Lake. We talk about that a lot. Um, This is our 25-year plan to reduce our combined sewer overflow volume by 3 billion billion, gallons. Um, And so this is a gigantic project. And because it is so so long-reaching, of course, planning has had a hand in it from even before I was on the planning team with negotiations and uh, all of the technical requirements of of the consent decree that we have with the EPA that guides this project. For people who don't know what Project Clean Lake is, how are they going to solve these $3 billion, or I'm sorry, 3 billion gallons worth of uh, sewer overflows? How are they going to take care of that? So there are... 25 control measures within the consent decree. And these are all large projects that we have committed to completing, most notably seven large diameter tunnels underground. Um, Three are complete, two are under construction. Um, I think all but one have have started design uh, and then Big Creek Tunnel will be our last one. And what I do, uh, we essentially track the progress of the consent decree. Um, We look at it from a financial perspective. We look at it from a progress perspective. We coordinate with the EPA. We also track it from a hydraulic perspective to understand uh, through modeling how many gallons have we reduced so far? Where are we in our volume reduction? How far do we have to go? Um, And the project so far is coming in on time, under budget, (laughs) higher volumes than we initially even thought. Um, So it's been really exciting to, um, you know, watch those numbers grow and and increase uh, in very positive ways. So on the surface, what might residents see or or folks see if they drive by one of these tunnel sites? Anything? Um, So you'll see a gigantic hole in the ground. (laughs) Um, The tunnels mainly are constructed by 
excavating gigantic shafts down into the ground. And these are 100, 200 feet into the ground. Um, once they are constructed, it's kind of like connect the dots. There will be very strategically located sites where then a tunnel boring machine can be uh, essentially, I don't want to say dropped, but lowered. Oh, thank you. <laughs> The tunnel boring machines are lowered into the tunnel and reconstructed down under there, and then they start their mining processes. And, you know, planning is very high level, so I'm sure someone else could speak more at length to the technical details, but the intense amount of really high caliber engineering that is going into these projects is so exciting and so fascinating and so impressive. Um, there are so many variables to think about. Um, I know, for instance, one of the tunnels that recently started mining the shoreline tunnel is a soft ground tunnel. So that changes what kind of TBM do we need to put down there? How are we going to get this material out? What are we going to do with it? Because instead of rock, it's more of a clay consistency. And I, it was described to me as like this consistency of toothpaste coming out of the ground. Uh, and when you have these tunnels that are a couple miles long, that's a lot of material that you got to move, a lot of logistics, a mm -hmm. lot of design. Um, so it's really fascinating very overwhelming, <laughs> but uh, really, really cool projects uh, that are going on. What initiative do you uh, like working on the most? Or are you most excited about coming up? Um, I really enjoy working on anything that strengthens partnerships. And that can be across departments within the sewer district, um, naturally, because planning has such a high-level view. We work across with operations and maintenance, watersheds, finance, legal. We are all over the place. Um, so being able to make those connections and link up different initiatives across the district uh, is really exciting to me. Um, but also continuing to strengthen our partnerships with our communities by providing technical information and input on uh, local projects, uh, figuring out the best way to provide funding for these projects, whether that comes from our funds or assisting communities with applying for federal funds. That's always really exciting to me. We have a task force currently that is working on um, what is the sewer district's definition of environmental justice? That is a big, big question that has required input from across the district. Um, so I've been able to be part of those discussions, a lot of learning, a lot of reading up on the history of environmental justice and injustice in our region. And what is what is environmental justice? Just uh... Would you mind looking up, because like the EPA has a definition mm -hmm. of environmental justice, so I feel like that would be a good... The EPA defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. This goal will be achieved when everyone enjoys the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards and equal access to the decision-making process to have a healthy environment in which to live, learn, and work. Yeah, so obviously that's a really robust definition. Uh, how do we implement that into our project planning process? How do we implement that into um, how funds are allocated through our various grant programs? Um, 
you know, it really touches every single part of what we do. Is environmental justice a way to kind of level things out or make sure that that funding is more evenly distributed through the communities? Absolutely. And I will say, I mean, that history of differing investment is a very nuanced and complicated issue. So we recognize that, you know, we're not going to set all of those years of inequity right by, you know, one policy or one definition, but it is our responsibility to take steps forward to make up for those injustices. Um, So that's really where we're coming from with this commitment that's been invigorating to, um, you know, see us taking steps forward to not only just saying, oh, yes, and we're going to be more equitable and we're going to be more, you know, justice minded, but actually put boots on the ground, figure out how are we going to do this? What is our commitment? How do we communicate that internally and externally? All right, let's go. Let's do it. So essentially, the way that the MCIP is structured is that there there are different categories for how um, grant applications are scored, one of which is a match score. So we ask the communities to bring a minimum of a 25% match of funds uh, for the project. And typically, if a community can bring additional funds up to 50%, then they can garner additional points in the scoring points up to 10 10 additional points uh, on a sliding scale based on that percentage of match. And these projects come in very close together point-wise. They are just points apart. It's not like we're talking one scoring, you know, 150 and one is scoring like 20. Mm -hmm. It's like they are, they're like 83, 84, 85, you know, they're all very close. So those points um, for communities that are able to afford to put more money towards their project, they they can, you know, we were seeing that they could um, really push themselves ahead. And we we felt that that wasn't really fair. And so this was the way that we were trying to level the playing field. So just just a little uh, background on this scoring process. So we have yeah. all these pro- potential projects that we could be doing or could be assisting communities with, and we need to figure out how to prioritize them, right? So mm-hmm. we have a scoring system. Right. And it takes into account infrastructure condition, um, the water quality and quantity benefit of the project, uh, any stormwater source control that the project may offer. But like Donna said, it's a very competitive program. Um, And so those 10 points in the match score category can really make or break whether a project gets funded. And so we had communities that were bringing really technical really technically sound projects that were going to have great benefit for the community to us. But sometimes it was more difficult to bring enough match funding to, you know, get funded or. So because some communities couldn't compete with the matching dollars, they were. They were scoring lower. They were scoring lower. It was just as good a project. It's just, they could not bring the money. We felt that there was an opportunity to increase equity with how we're allocating funds uh, specifically with this scoring category. So I took a look uh, at the census data for our service area. And the district has an affordability program where if a household 
if the median household income uh, for a home is less than or equal to 250% of the federal poverty level, that home is then eligible for a reduced sewer rate. I took a look at the census data for rather than a household, a census tract, which is slightly larger than a neighborhood, um, and compared the median household income of that tract to the federal poverty level to match the um, affordability program criteria. So census tracts that also meet that criteria are then eligible to be an equity investment focus area where we have a separate pot, if you will, of MCIP funds for those projects. And those projects, they still are required to bring a 25 minimum match but there is no more sliding scale for the match scoring. So these projects are just scored on a technical basis and only competing with other EIFA projects. Mm-hmm. Just having that separation uh, of competition, we felt would be a good way to increase equity in the program. I think it is helping a lot to m- really balance the scales a bit. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to think about infrastructure from a technical perspective um you know that's valid that's you know essentially what we do but when you think about the people that we're serving it takes on a whole nother level and motivation for the work that we do donna just one more time if someone sees a problem in their community what's their best course of action for doing something about it like a, if they see a blocked culvert or if there's a some kind of flooding issue what's what's the best thing for them to do yeah so typically i would say um that your community is should be the first call so you can call your community service department um and just let them know what's going on and then if they need to call us, then they have a representative at the sewer district that they can call directly and we can help solve some of those problems. Um, And if it's not a problem we can solve immediately, then so, for example, if it's, um, you know, a poor sanitary, local sanitary sewer, uh, that's something that we can maybe try to work on with them to apply for member community infrastructure program grant money. So we just had our Clean Water Fest, our uh, annual Clean Water Fest, and it was a a raging success. Good attendance and a lot of sewer district staff and partner agency guests uh, had tents set up throughout the grounds, and people were visiting with all the different water-related agencies and other community groups. Our CEO, Kyle Dreyfus-Wells, was in attendance helping out, and she also had an opportunity to speak with... WKYC Channel 3's Jason Michael, Mm -hmm. and they talked about a lot of things that I think are pertinent to today's conversation with Christine. So we're going to listen to some excerpts from that interview in a minute, but I thought it was a really good interview. Um, She was great, and I think she really pointed out what we are taught what we talked about in Christine's interview, which is the need for investment into our infrastructure and how much clean water actually costs. I think the interview touched on a lot of topics that we hope to cover. In this podcast. Yes. And maybe Kyle will join us one day. I think she will. She'd hang out with us. For a half hour. Yeah. So here's the interview with Kyle Dreyfus-Wells and Jason Michael of Channel 3. So Kyle Dreyfus-Wells, she is the CEO 
of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, where she oversees the operation of one of the largest clean water agency in the Buckeye State. Kyle, if you will, if you can kind of elaborate or give us a general sense of why was the Clean Water Fest created? Well, thanks, Jason. It's great to be here with you. And it's great to be here with everybody that's joined us for Clean Water Fest. I think, you know, in a nutshell, we created Clean Water Fest because we wanted to give our customers and anyone else who's interested the opportunity to see what it is that we do. I think you can see from today the complexity of protecting water quality and protecting public health and the level of work and partnership and detail and expense and focus on infrastructure that it takes. And we're all about at the district bringing it to our customers so that they don't have to search for information and for answers. And so that's what we wanted to do with Clean Water Fest. You know, I think when we think of our water systems, our sewer systems, we think of like, okay, we're just going to flush this down the drain or we're going to, you know, we're going to maybe we'll turn this water off here and there. We won't waste a little bit of water. But there's such a vital network that goes into how we operate here in Northeast Ohio, how we kind of harvest the water from Lake Erie, from the Cuyahoga River. Obviously, going back, history was made in 1969 with the Cuyahoga River fire, the 13th. 13, one, three, right. 13th final fire. And I wish it would have stopped at one. Yeah, well, right. And we weren't the only ones, right? Like Correct. there was rivers catching on fire all across the country. The Cuyahoga River caught fire many times because it was treated like the back door. You know, it was treated where uh, industrial sewage went, where uh, runoff went from parking lots and rooftops and roadways. We did not have the Clean Water Act, which required permits if you're going to discharge to a water body. And now we have that all in place. And I think the point for people to take away is that clean water is not an accident. We have clean water today because of regulation, because of investment, and because of incredibly smart folks that are solving these problems every day. So that kind of leads us into climate change and how even Lake Erie, you know, the the, the icebergs melting, the 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 uh, temperature of Lake Erie, the algal blooms. Right. Yeah, I think when folks in Northeast Ohio think about climate change, sometimes we say, well, that doesn't really affect me. But the, the path forward for us in a changing climate is really summarized with wetter, warmer, wilder weather, right? So we're going to see more intense rainstorms more often. And what that means for folks that live in Northeast Ohio is that your infrastructure, the drains on your street, The streams, our combined sewers, our wastewater treatment plants are essentially going to be working harder, more often, longer periods of time. So that's going to cost more money. It's going to require more maintenance. It's going to mean that folks can have flooding in their streets more often. And so the question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about it as a resident? First and foremost, look around your own property. Are your downspouts disconnected? Can they run over your grass so that you're managing some of your own stormwater? When you're making landscaping decisions, go away from grass and do what we have at my house, which is no grass and just a huge meadow. It is crazy time uh, at the Dreyfus Wells household. The downspouts are disconnected. We have an 1,100-gallon cistern. We have a big rain garden in the front yard. And so we have very little runoff. But we still pay our stormwater fee and we still pay our wastewater fee, which folks need to understand is what funds all of the work that is going on here. 
I think there's probably been a lot of talks about the fees and such. If you can kind of elaborate, go in a little bit more in depth about that, you know, just for a lay person or a new person like me, yeah. just freshly here, I'm celebrating a year this week in Northeast Thank Ohio. You. So I'm glad to be here. I love being here. But for someone that, you know, perhaps getting their bill and you're like, hmm, I don't know what that's for. Right, right. So the average customer in our service area pays about $100 a month for sewer, for stormwater, and then also for drinking water. So think about the water cycle as it manifests in your house, right? So you have clean water that comes to you 24-7, 365. You turn on the tap and clean, drinkable water is there always. Now that in and of itself is amazing. And we've seen around the country in, in places like Jackson, Mississippi, Benton Harbor, Michigan, Flint, Michigan, Toledo, when that drinking water is at risk, the whole place shuts down. So just ponder that for a moment. So you have clean drinking water coming to your house 24-7, 365. Then you use it in whatever ways you do in your home. And then you flush that toilet. It goes down the drain and it comes to us. And it comes through pipes and it goes through bigger pipes. And then it comes to our wastewater treatment plants. And we treat it and we put it back in Lake Erie or the Cuyahoga River, which eventually goes to Lake Erie. And you can drink it again. Right now, just let that sink in. That is amazing. And that's $100 a month. Now, for some folks, that's not a lot of money. For some folks, though, that's a lot of money. And so we have our affordability programs. And folks need to get signed up for those. We are focused on making it as easy as possible to get signed up. 40% reduction in your bill uh, for folks that qualify. And 250% of poverty gets you qualified, which is a very high number. That's about $63,000 a year for a family of four. So we take this very seriously. Um, I really appreciate you bringing that up about Jackson, Mississippi. I was born and raised in Mississippi and the crisis that they are dealing with right now in Jackson, Mississippi, it is a state capital that is dealing with a significant issue as it relates to their water quality that's happening at the Ross Burnett Reservoir. Um, coming out of the reservoir is the Pearl River. It runs right through my hometown. I often think about the Hill Country floods. My last TV market was in Austin, Texas. We were shut down with our water for, I believe, about five days. Wow. Austin, Texas is, I believe, one of the, if not the most uh, rapidly expanding city in the country right now. So many people are moving, flocking, as I like to say, to right. Austin, Texas. Can you imagine that water system being shut down? No. Can you imagine what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now? So as Ms. Wells is just saying, that fee is to help in issues and times like that. You know, getting that water, harvesting that water, purifying it, spitting it back out for us as well. Right. Agriculture. Ohio is a huge, huge agricultural state. Take Texas. Yeah. And we need, we need good quality water for agriculture, okay. but also the runoff. That's going to be an issue as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I will, I'll talk about ag runoff. Can I just go back to Jackson? Absolutely. For just a second? I think what we're seeing from our friends in Jackson is uh, uh, what happens when systems are not invested in on a periodic, systematic and regular basis. The, the most expensive time to pay for infrastructure is when you have a crisis. And so our good friends in Jackson are dealing with a situation where that system has been neglected for years. They didn't just wake up to a boil water advisory in Jackson. They've had boil water advisories in Jackson for a long, long time. And people at the local level have been, you know, crying the issue. They've been highlighting this issue. But I want to emphasize that you need to have a plan. 
You need to do the 10-year capital planning that our folks in engineering and construction do. You need to do the daily preventative maintenance that our folks in operations and maintenance do here. It's not an accident and it's not magic. It takes people every day that are focused on this. And it's that real systemic, systematic approach to infrastructure that we do so well at the sewer district. Um, when we talk about ag, agricultural runoff, you know, start from the fact that agricultural production is essential for all of us. We're talking about food and, you know, it's crucial. Plus, we're talking about a lot of jobs. I think the solution, we're talking about nutrient runoff, right? So phosphorus, nitrogen, things that are put on the crops uh, to help them grow. And the issue is when you get rainstorms, you have runoff from, that, uh, from those crops. You get sediment and nutrients that go into the waterways. And essentially, you get too much of a good thing, so it can cause uh, problems with drinking water, etc. We have all the solutions. The farmers know the solutions. The soil and water conservation district folks know the solutions. We need to have the funding and the regulatory structure to get that implemented. How do you think the best way to go about securing that funding for these operations? Well, I think we've seen a couple examples of it in Ohio. So Governor DeWine has come up with H2 Ohio, which is a funding stream that is focused uh, much in the western basin. So the western basin of Lake Erie is where these hazardous algal blooms begin. Much of the agricultural runoff is in the Maumee Basin. That's why we saw the issue come with our friends in Toledo around their drinking water. So you have both carrot and stick. And I'm a firm believer because I'm in the wastewater and stormwater business, which is a heavily regulated business. You know, people do things because there's money, there's regulations, or they want to be cool. Those are the only three reasons people do anything. And so you got to have all of them. What can we do singularly, collectively, to kind of propel ourselves forward? Obviously, we still have issues that we have to deal with around the world in this country, regionally, but also locally. How do we tackle this head on, heading home today from the festival? Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate that question. I think the first thing is to be a good citizen. So read. That needs a hashtag. I don't you think that needs a hashtag? Needs a hashtag. But don't, you know, I sometimes I say stuff, it just like rolls out. You may have sensed that. Um, but, you know, just so read question, right? If somebody says something to you, like they're doing this, this, and this, and it doesn't make any sense to you, ask, push back. And that's why it's so great to have all of our staff here today, because if you think, you know, the sewer district did X, Y, Z, and that doesn't make any sense, well, ask us and we'll explain it. Maybe we're right. Maybe we're wrong. So first be a good citizen, vote, be educated, ask questions, participate in your church community, in your neighborhood community, those types of things. And then I would also say specifically as it relates to water, clean water, understand the cycle that you're in, you know, understand that the water quality in Lake Erie is the direct result of the land use decisions that we make. Wow. That's the deal. That was a wow moment. That is it. I mean, that's it. The, the hard surfaces, the, the, the chemicals that we use on our lawn, think about it before you fertilize your lawn. If you happen to be one of those people that changes your own oil, don't dump it down the storm drain. I can't believe I just said that. There's like a quiet that goes over. Um, I'm thinking about my dad changing the oil you know in, what the, I'm saying? In, in the driveway. <laughs> right. A storm drain is not a trash can. So it's a direct connection to Lake Erie. Don't litter. I'm amazed. That can folks- we say it louder for the people in the back? Right. <laughs> Cigarette butts. Yeah. 
they don't break down. Yeah. So it's the little things and then it's the big thing in terms of understanding your role in the system. And then stop arguing about climate change. Yes. Like it is legit. It is hotter. It's wetter, warmer, wilder weather. And it's because of human interactions. So get over it and start fixing it. The only thing I wanted to do was just highlight the moment that we're in. So this is 2022. The Clean Water Act was signed in 1972. So that's 50 years now. Just put a little footnote there. Kyle Dreyfus Wells was born in 1968. So that means that I'm a little older than 50 years old. Uh, So, you know, that's always a shocker for myself. Um, Right. I know. Right. (laughs) So this is 50 years of progress. And you see these 50 year anniversaries all over now. Right. So we've got the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, a lot of other things that have improved the public health and welfare of all of us. And so it's a great moment to really marvel at what the public sector can do. I would just, I I have a question for you, Kyle. You know, obviously as a meteorologist, um, we are forecasting weather anomalies from, you know, uh, severe storms to tornadic type storms. You know, when I was living and working in the South, tropical systems as well, and now dealing with winter storms here. Uh, Prolonged winters, harsher winters, wetter winters, hotter summers, longer summers. In your, in your opinion, in, your, in, in, in your education, the different weather anomalies that are more extreme and they're going to become more extreme right. in the years to come, how do we look at those events? Superstorm Sandy, right. uh, you know, Hurricane Maria that affected the Caribbean, uh, you know, different anniversary type winter storms here. How do we look at those events and kind of calculate how much we need to do in the years to come? Because they will get worse and they will become more frequent. Yeah. I think what those big storms show us is this idea of coastal living and how that really needs to start to be, to, to change. And what, what, what at the coast folks need to look at how they can sort of give that coastal area back because you need those coastal buffers. And as we saw in Superstorm Sandy, that coast can come way up inland. So kind of an understanding of those, of those areas. At the sewer district, the conversation that we're having is around our urban streams. Under our regional stormwater management program, we're actually working with homeowners along stream banks that want to move out of there. And so we can purchase people's property at market rate, you know, provide them an offer that if they want to sell, and then we can restore stream function. And essentially, we're taking a 475-mile system that has been impacted over years of development and knitting it back together. So there's that resilience built back into the system. Clean Waterworks is produced by the Communications and Community Relations Department at the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Our music was composed and performed by G.S. Shrey. If you have a question or suggestion, or if you'd like to learn more about the Regional Sewer District, visit neorsd.org or call 216-881-8247.